seeing the police state tactics in Portland, Oregon, a lot of people are asking, what can we do? What can we do? Stay tuned. We, with your help, are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. We've all seen the blatant police state tactics unleashed on the Black Lives Matter protesters in Portland, Oregon. The message Trump is sending is fear. Be very afraid of me and my troops. And deep in his personality, as revealed by her, his niece in her book, is a belief in physical dominance. We may remember him literally stalking Hillary Clinton in their debate. He adores military dictatorships, which feature secret enforcers who can whisk people away without any legal ramifications. And he has pledged to do to other cities the same thing, what he did in Portland. He actually named them New York, Chicago, Oakland, Baltimore, and other cities. In order to be successful, fascism relies on fear. Americans are not typically living in fear. Trump intends to change that. That is winning to him. In light of what we witnessed in Portland, people are asking, what can we do effectively? Well, we are anything but powerless. For example, Trump hates Black Lives Matter, but it's popping up everywhere. Millions are embracing Black Lives Matter despite or perhaps because of Trump's overt racism. We can successfully fight the imposition of a police state. Yes, we can. But not if we do what the Trumpist forces hope will do. Far too many fell for the ploy in Portland, giving Trump exactly what he wanted. TV ads showing the secret police quelling violence, the image of law and order, manipulation of fear. It worked really well for Nixon in 1968. Will it work now? What tactics and strategy offer the best chances for preventing a total fascist takeover of America? What dumb things do protesters do that Trumpists love? Well, I'm very pleased to have with us today George Lakey to discuss the nonviolent, creative approaches he's learned from many years of direct participation. Thanks for being with us, George Lakey. Thanks for inviting me. George Lakey has been active in direct action campaigns for over six decades, recently retired from Swarthmore College. He was first arrested in the civil rights movement and most recently in the climate justice movement. He's facilitated 1,500 workshops on five continents and led activist projects on local, national, and international levels. His 10 books and many articles reflect his social research into change on community and societal levels. His newest books are Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too, parentheses, you can hear my interview with him on this book from, 19, uh, from 2016 at my website. Another book he wrote is How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. That's from 2018. His new article is titled Understanding Trump's Plan in Portland Could Be Key to Preventing a Coup. I like that hopefulness. Well, I can't believe I actually need to ask the question in my introduction. What tactics and strategy offer the best chances for preventing a total fascist takeover of America? I never thought I'd have to ask that question. Threat is real. Trump and Barr and others are dedicated to replacing our Republican form of government with a far-right religious nationalism. Everyone listening, I'm sure, was appalled by what we saw in Portland a few weeks ago. Who were those secret police? From what federal agencies were they? 
Well, they're mostly associated with uh, the uh, Homeland Defense uh, Department. But there were the Coast Guard, uh, the, some of the Coast Guard people were involved as well. Huh. FBI, yeah. So it was a, a kind of motley crew of people who weren't used to working together necessarily um, and who acknowledged to reporters who asked them, who were able to get one-on-one, you know, just next to them and say, by the way, were you trained in crowd management before <laughs> you came here? <laughs> they said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, it was pretty clearly uh, kind of a last-minute idea that popped up in the Trump team, and they decided to try it out, rather than a really well-thought-out um, approach. Well, that does seem, uh, he does rather go with impulses from time to time now, doesn't he? Your article mentions Chris, Christopher David. Why is he mentioned? Who is he? What about his experience in Portland? Well, he was a veteran who, uh, who you know, uh, had respect for the uniform and so on, and saw these people showing up and on his streets in, in Portland, and was uh, very, uh, you know, wondering whether they even knew what they were doing, and approached some of them, and uh, just in a spirit, he's an older man, and just approached them, uh, not from the ranks of the activists, you know, just sort of coming as a pedestrian, came over to them and said, so uh, I'd just like you to remember you swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. They broke his hands, and they just jumped on it as if he had made a major attack on them. Yeah. Wow. America in 2020. What do you... This is... It is said that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Now, the Trumpist's in, intent was to own the streets, or at least dominate them. Why did they choose Portland? What are some of the reasons the Trump forces chose that city and state as their first place to assault? Well, Portland has a reputation as having a bunch of uh, activists, a, a wing of the you know broad activist movement that is uh, is very prone to be drawn into street fighting. And uh, one way they demonstrated that over the last few years was when uh, when fascists and white supremacists were becoming more active and more you know more showing up on streets in various parts of America. And uh, Portland was one of the places they would show up, and uh, so some of those uh, those activists would see it as an invitation to show uh, that that there was no no rightful place in America for people with those points of view to express themselves and to try to get them off the streets and engage them physically in order to get them off the streets. So there were there were street. There was a certain amount of street battling, and then that, over time, I interviewed uh, a professor at Portland State University on this who's uh, both a, a researcher in this field and also long experience in direct action, so he's shown up in a lot of street situations. And he said, hmm. over time, the last few years, uh, he's watched that wing of the uh, of the movement become more and more... Um, Sort of, you know, inclined across the line. If you draw a line between nonviolent action and, and violent action, and so um, 
what happened over time in Portland was that, and I didn't get a chance to write this in the article, but what, I, what happened in Portland over time was a, a kind of informal division of labor in which mm. the folks who were the protesters who were very keen on nonviolence would do their thing in the late afternoon or early evening and retire from the scene, maybe 839 or something, having made their protest. And then uh, these uh, the, that wing that was more open to property destruction and even to to violence in the sense of the chance of hurting people, hurting police, or hurting uh, fascists, or hurting white supremacists, they would take over the street at that point and do their thing for a few hours, maybe stretching till midnight or one o'clock. So there got to be a kind of division of labor, and uh, and that was in a sense working pretty well because the public, the media were very straightforward. The media understood this and would distinguish between the nonviolent force and the force that was more ambiguous. But um, the problem with this particular um, you know, moment around Black Lives Matter, and especially after the intervention of the feds, was that tremendously large numbers of people joined the demonstrations who weren't used to this division of labor you know, and didn't know, oh, there's going to be a kind of retirement time when we step aside and let the others do it. And they were just like on it, on it, often a thousand people would be out there in the night. And uh, so it got very, very confusing because both kinds of tactics were being used at the same time. And uh, that, that got to be very confusing and produ- productive then for videotapes of, uh, you know, of uh, riotous behavior, let's call it riotous behavior, uh, that would be able to be used by the Trump team in TV stations all over the country to drum up more support for the Trump election. Um, so it was, it was seeing, it was knowing about this dynamic that was growing that led Portland to be the obvious candidate to try this experiment out on the part of the Trump team. Let's see if we could get in there and push the envelope, push people, push people, push people, and see how far they would go, especially wouldn't it be handy if, uh, since some of their demonstrations are at the federal building, um, to, to because then we could use the excuse that we have to defend the federal building, and we can also say, look, there's such a history in Portland of uproar in the streets that obviously the local authorities can't handle it. They're not doing well. And so they need Big Brother to come in and straighten things out for them. So it was it, Portland really was a kind of setup uh, in a certain way, historically, for it to be chosen as the spot. Uh, yeah, they are uh, more sophisticated than we uh, often realize. And yet... That's, I'm glad you brought that up, Bert, because I, I find very often among activists a feeling that just because Trump is hugely deficient in the in information base in a lot of things, it, it would be great for him to know as President of the United States. For hmm. example, he, he asked recently, well, is Finland an independent country or is it part of Russia? You know, stuff like that. So he's, he's, there's vast ignorance in the man. So it's very easy to um, underrate him. And that would be a mistake because he's actually very smart, but he's very smart in the things he's interested in. <laughs> he couldn't care less about Finland, but he cares a lot about winning yes. any contest that he's involved in. And that's where uh, that's where we are in danger if we under 
rate him. Uh, indeed, that does seem to be the case. And I doubt that he's read anything of history, but you and I probably remember 1968 when uh, Nixon had great success in connecting with voters who may have been ambivalent about him. Fear and reassurance are proven ways to swing elections. Uh, so, and, and we've seen Trump ads. If you haven't seen them, it, it'll knock your socks off. They're amazing. He, what he's trying to do with his TV ads, he's trying to make people fearful and bring back law and order. Uh, do, do, do you think that's, uh, I, I suppose it has some chance of working, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, reading your article and, and feeling some degree of optimism that people are not falling for that, though it's, I think it's true that a lot of people less sophisticated people, more naive people, sometimes kids, young white males largely, who go to these things, and it looks like a lot of fun to be fighting in the streets. But, uh, you know, when people are angry at racist police violence, as they were, and it seems entirely appropriate, people often feel reactively in their hearts and urge to strike back. How can that be addressed without literally striking back and just going for the fun of uh, smashing police? Well, uh, to address the earlier part first uh, about uh, the, you know, what what kind of impact has this had, I think the videotapes are not having as much impact as the Trump team hoped. And that's because um, the, the background, the months preceding, or the month or so preceding, um, was a tremendously clear nonviolent uh, Black Lives Matter a phenomenon of demonstrations around the country, right? In which even there were police taking the knee and so on, very dramatic yes. uh, photographs and TV coverage and so on of people in, in extraordinary uh, displays, both of nonviolent activity and nonviolent protests and also some very uh, flagrant displays of brutality, like the clearing of the street in front of the, the White House. Yeah. <laughs> so Things had been set up before the, the federal uh, intervention that the Trump team organized uh, in such a way that people were, I think, a lot of people who might have fallen for these uh, videos um, have this question, yeah, but what's really going on? And are looking around, you know, for clues about, so what's really going on? And that's, again, a place where we have some strength. Yes. because. So many people in the center, so many mayors, uh, so many um, state officials, state governors, and so on, so many politicians, uh, nationally politicians, um, have, including some Republicans, have said, um, have, have told the truth. And so uh, people are, are, so I don't think that the wave that this video gambit was supposed to create uh, is happening. Yeah, I, you have to have a sense of optimism, or at least, you know, being a uh, liberal Democrat here in New Hampshire, you got to have some sense of optimism and perhaps naivete <laughs> to keep on doing it. But every now and then, some good things happen. And your article mentions the 1992 uh, uh, rebellion in Los Angeles. What, what is known about the effects of that and the direction even Democrats then took? That might be instructive somewhat. 
Right, yeah. In that case, uh, yeah, you're referring to a research uh, study on the impact of the, the major riot in L.A., and, and it, it definitely pushed the Democrats in order to be able to win. In that case, they were able to win. They didn't lose, like in the Nixon case. But they did win, but they felt like they had to win by pushing very hard a law and order um, yeah. Uh, platform, and then they felt obligated to implement that, and and uh, we've we've you know we've experienced mass incarceration, uh, and outrageous uh, since then, and the three strikes you're out, and just mm-hmm. all kinds of outrageous stuff, um, because pe- because of course the Democrats are motivated it's always to the most important thing is win the election and do whatever it takes. And so they did that because they felt the riot was pressing people to to support the more law and order type party. So disorder, in that way, the Trump team, I think, was very reasonable in its calculation. Well, if we can get enough, uh, if we can play, you know, play the protesters <laughs> and manipulate them into... Uh, crossing the line into violence and do that in a, in a, a situation of chaos sufficiently, uh, we can still win the next election. It's not too late. And I think that was a very reasonable calculation. And so, and then announcing they were going to go to other cities and do the same thing got me thinking, well, this is really a, a pretty good design on their part because. In many cities and towns, there are people, as you just said, we're saying, um, who who are so angry, and we're so justifiably angry. Of course, we're yes. very, very angry at the these uh, these the, the ongoing systematic day in day out brutality that's involved with the uh, with racism, plus the you know the stuff on top of that. So there's lots of anger. I feel a lot of anger. And so it's it, it's so uh, and when I and as one person when I am angry I'm more easily manipulated than when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any of your listeners can identify with that, but <laughs> gosh, I think so. My goodness, that that's an interesting psychological observation, sociological observation for those who may have just tuned in. Uh, We are speaking with a very happy (laughs) George Lakey, uh, who's written a number of uh, good books, uh, including uh, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. His new article uh, is titled, Understanding Trump's Plan in Portland Could Be Key to Preventing a Coup. It's so interesting how, you know, he says these things, these shiny objects to attract our attention. Meanwhile, they're still working to have a coup and somehow cancel, you know, effectively cancel the election. I mean, it's they're they're clever. I have to give them credit. It's obviously not just Trump himself, but the people around him, Stephen Miller, perhaps Bannon is still there. And I don't know. Um, and the media, they love action. You know, they're not going to cover something if there's not a lot of action. The mass media, as you say, uh, as usual, gave us gave most headlines to the rioting. And uh, when the police came in, it was clearly Trump's intent. Uh, at the protesters' numbers went from hundreds to thousands. As you note, some activists escalated their violent tactics in response to escalation by the feds. And as you also say, Trump can hope that in Chicago or Oakland, activists might not see how much he wants them to fall for his ploy. 
emphasis added here, some of the young, mainly white men in the streets of Portland used the cover of the word Antifa to allegedly set fires, throw things, using lasers and hitting officers. And, you know, we understand, uh, especially from perhaps bored young men in the COVID crisis uh, and the thrill of fighting in the streets, how does this work uh, relative to the achieving of the goals of the protesters? What can we do about it? How can we more effectively reach, and this is difficult, having uh, kids myself, 19 and 23, how can we more effectively reach young, excitable men relative to how they're falling for Trump's ploy? Uh, that's a tough one. It is a tough one. It's a tough one, especially if there's not an alternative way of expressing their anger, their righteous anger at uh, at racism and and you know other 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 terrible things we see happening around us, like you know uh, uh, official policies of being oblivious toward climate change. And so <laughs> there's so much to be angry about these days. So. Um, what the and I think the tremendous advantage we've got in this country, as compared with the number of countries I've worked in, is that we have the historical treasure of the civil rights movement showing us how to deal with that. Yeah. Because what the civil rights movement faced in the South, and this wouldn't be the case so much in the North, but in the South, in the Deep South, they faced the uh, largest, most coherent, um, and effective terrorist organization the U.S. has ever produced, and that's the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan practically ran, uh, you know, areas of Mississippi and Alabama and so deep in the South. And the, uh, but that's also where the heart of the civil rights movement was emerging in those black churches, some of the rural black churches as well as urban and so on. So the question was, what, how, how could black people in situations where even police officers would be taking off their uniform at night and putting on white sheets. Right. You know, so, so <laughs> there's not a question of, oh, we'll demonstrate and we'll hope that local law enforcement will help us to stay alive because local law enforcement was, you know. Yeah. And, and, and the state, I mean, the state of Mississippi and the state of Alabama both wanted the black uh, leadership dead. That's what they wanted. Yeah. So, um, so they they had to find an alternative source of power, and the pow the power source they found was nonviolent struggle. It turns out that nonviolence is actually more effective than violence is in conflict situations, and so they relied on the nonviolence, and they were able to beat the Ku Klux Klan in state after state down there by by remaining nonviolence and triggering the center to be able to handle these angry young men. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, Bert, that sure. will illustrate what this is about. I was on the training staff for 1964 Mississippi Summer, which was gathering mm. about a 1,000 people, uh, young people, students, uh, including from your state, uh, who, who volunteered to go to Mississippi and teach in freedom schools and participate in the movement. And... Uh, they, they were especially interested in white northerners coming because they wanted to mobilize uh, the parents, the families who'd be scared to death of their young, their student, you know, their their youngster wouldn't come back alive, uh, to mobilize people to really pressure the federal government to intervene in Mississippi and force the state of Mississippi 
to uh, to have voting rights and so on for blacks. So it was a very sophisticated strategy, and I understood the strategy and you know, signed on as a trainer. So I was out there in Ohio. We would train almost 500 people a week uh, to go down there and be able to do this. And um, and I, I got a chance, therefore, to talk to the um, director of the project whose brain child this was. It was a brilliant, brilliant guy named Bob Moses. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah. And I got to uh, go over and, and say, okay, Bob, so here's the question I can't figure out. I can't figure out how it is that... Uh, you folks are alive. I mean, you, you SNCC workers, you and a few other extremely brave SNCC workers entered Mississippi last year, 1963, when there was no, no movement. You know, they were trying to start a movement, but you were totally at risk. And then you were able to recruit some more of your friends, your SNCC work, worker friends, to come in and join you and so on. But you folks were sitting ducks. So I'd like to know, how did you survive? He said, okay, let me tell you a story because, uh, well, he said, first of, first of all, he gave me a principle, and I didn't get it. He, the principle, he said, was, we, um, we made a, a rule that in our freedom houses, we tended to live in groups group houses, you would find somebody willing to rent us a house. So we would make a rule that in the Freedom House, there would be no guns, and that everyone would know it. We'd let the word out. We would tell everybody, there are no guns in the Freedom House. And I said, Bob, I don't get it. Like, how does that actually work to protect you? And he said, okay, I'll tell you a story about how it worked. Uh, let's picture small town, Mississippi. Hardware store, owned, you know, fat, local family owned hardware store. Worker comes in Monday morning, goes to work. He comes in, he's very pleased, and he, he's pumped, and he says to his boss, okay, tonight's the night. You know, that freedom-loving, that freedom house on the corner, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. uh, he's using N-words and all the language I want to use. Yeah. Um, uh, we're, we're getting him tonight. Tonight's the night. Now, the, his boss, happens to know that this uh, working class guy is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. It's a small town. But but the the worker also knows that the boss is a member of the White Citizens Council, which which was the segregationist outfit for the middle class people. Um, So they know who each other are, and the worker has every reason to think the boss will rejoice that this is going to happen. Instead, the boss says, I'm not going to let you do that. The answer is no, you cannot do that. And the workers, the workers dumped out. They said, what's the problem? What's the problem? Why, we we got to do this. We gotta... And, the, and the, the boss says, no, absolutely not. You cannot do that. And the reason why is because this state is really in economic trouble. It needs capital from the north. All we need is a couple of shootouts in these, you know, in these rural areas, you, you guys, you know, going out and killing a bunch of, of these snick workers. And that is the end to investment in Mississippi. And we will not put up with that. It's good to be smart to think about things. That That is, so it's very nitty gritty. It's, it was an extreme uh, example of using, uh, 
of noting, noting that there are differences of interest in your opponent and using one part of your opponent to control the other part of your opponent. A very sophisticated strategy. Interesting. Coming out of this uh, black math teacher from Chicago who decided to join SNCC and go to Mississippi. So this is Bob Moses' strategy. And it worked. It worked like a charm. It, uh, yes, there were deaths, of course. There are always deaths in major conflicts. I mean, yeah. think of the number who die in war. Oh, yeah. uh, but uh, there were very, very few deaths in, in, in the middle of all that vulnerability. So what Moses was saying was we emphasized, we spotlighted our vulnerability, and that put the pressure on people who could think more rationally and in a big-picture way. Big Uh-oh. picture. We should not let this happen we will intervene and stop the violence from happening and that's so interesting appealing to your opponent uh to have different parts of him or her uh sort of speak to one another that's fascinating approach that's that's Isn't that fascinating and that does show up in not in such graphic ways in a number of conflicts that you will find that there are people behind the scenes very often power people who will step in at a certain point and control the people who are more more angry. So it, your initial question was, what do we do with people's anger? We need to channel the anger of, of people on our side into nonviolent actions by letting them in on some of these dynamics that are happening so that they can see, oh, okay, so I, I use my anger to get my courage up, to get out there, and be vulnerable in nonviolent way because I know that that is going to trigger a response on the other part, you know, on on this, you know, this complex power situation out here, such that we will win, and we will win if we use nonviolence, whereas we will lose if we use violence. Boy, I, I hope people can learn that lesson from history what works and what doesn't work but as regular listeners know i've long been saying one thing i've learned from history is that we never learn from history but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can at this point you know the nightly news network news uh loves rioting loves violence you know they go for the bang bang and for the blood as you note the black lives matter surge has sustained itself and is pretty much everywhere i am seriously impressed with that you know it, it drives trumpists crazy i'm sure you know to see black lives matter on the backs of professional basketball players shirts you know as they play and on the fields you write it continues to chalk up a series of limited victories and you say perhaps optimistically quote bigger victories await even more focused nonviolent campaigning. Please say more about that. That's right. Yeah. So this is a much, uh, this, this uh, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement has been wonderful in many, many ways. Uh, one way that it has been limited, however, though, it, uh, it is, however, is it's um, not been tightly focused around particular demands. And what a campaign does is it chooses a demand, a very specific demand, and then goes like a tiger after that demand and insisting on that particular demand. So, for example, although there's talk about defend, uh, defund right. the police, that wasn't accompanied with a very specific demand about take you know this amount 
of the police funding and put it into these kinds of resources and do this and do this and do this and do this. And in other words, this is the game plan that will deliver more community safety, more public safety than the police are able to deliver. We, you know, so we have a vision of what's more effective than the police and far more just than the police, and that's what we demand you put in place. And uh, that would be an example of taking this tremendous energy, which is very positively spilled over into NASCAR and all kinds of places, right? But uh, and and then taking that energy and channeling it into very very specific structural changes. And just staying on that and demanding, 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 and even escalating in order to get that change to happen. And with, without that, uh, we, we are getting a lot of smaller victories, but we can't get the structural change. And therefore, while police budgets have been affected in a number of places by this, um, the, yeah. the basics of policing are not getting affected by this, I think. That's true, and I, I, I do think the the phrase defund the police, it's unfortunate how that's been picked up on because it's a lot more than that, and people can easily misinterpret that, and it can be used by Trump and obviously is. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive is George Lakey, who's got a new article, Understanding Trump's Plan in Portland Could Be Key to Preventing a Coup. Understanding the Plan Can Stop a Coup. Now, Trump recently threw out the prospect of delaying the election. Obviously, even he knew that couldn't be done. He's trying to throw doubt on its legitimacy, you know, with mail-in ballots, etc. You write, right now in Portland, he's trying out the narrative that justifies a refusal to exit. You know, there could be, if there's chaos on the streets, uh, that could possibly enable Trump to mount a coup and remain in the White House, and that and uh, voter suppression as, as well. Your thoughts about that and how to perhaps get on top of that and, 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 and prevent uh, that enabling situation from happening? Well, uh, one of the things, if it's already happening in your community, that you can do is what the Wall of Moms did <laughs> in Portland and the leaves blowing yeah. dads and so on, right? That is, you great. can recruit people from your own uh, church, religious group, you know, your own civic group, your own uh, college class, whatever crowd you 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 uh, access, um, get uh, get your union uh, to en- jump into a conflict with a snazzy tactic like that, <laughs> and influence the ongoing character of what's going on uh-huh. uh, in that way. That was a brilliant brilliant moves that were taking place in, in uh, yeah. Portland. Um, but then an, uh, another thing, if, if uh, your insurgency hasn't happened yet in your town, you know, or, or place, um, I, I very strongly advocate uh, the campaign model that is start with a campaign. It, it'll use a number of the same uh, nonviolent tactics in order to pressure but it, because it's lifting up a positive program, there's more chance for actual tangible outcome as a result. So whether it's uh, you know whether it's um, house, housing right. that's the the problem in in your area, or whether it's schooling, or whether it's incarceration, whatever the issue is, to f- f- demand um, well first to envision. What is the alternative? Because pretty much everything that's 
this unjust in our society uh, presents itself as, yeah, but we're taking care of, you know, we're taking care of educational needs, or we're taking care of, you know, the, the people are, it, it, it's, and it's the only thing going, right? So it's the development of an alternative, and then getting behind that with pressure that builds, you know, first, first it starts with negotiation, Always, uh, Dr. King really emphasized that. We think of Dr. King as a great warrior, and he was, but he always sat down first with whoever, the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, or whoever, and said, this is what we want. <laughs> Gandhi, actually, he, King learned that from Gandhi. Gandhi kept saying, you always go first to the decider, and you say, this is what we want. And the decider usually says, no, you know, that's very nice that you want that, but you're not getting it. <laughs> and, then, and then you develop a campaign, and, and your campaign has some justification because you say, yeah, we already talked with the man, and the man said, uh-huh. So, uh, so you know, you gather your forces, and and that's what my book, How We Win, is about. It's about the systematic development of campaigns, and it's campaigns that deliver the goods. So it was campaign that got um, the Voting Rights Act passed yes. by Congress. I just watched again the movie Selma. I just really recommend to all your listeners yeah. um, to watch the film Selma that Ava Duny. Um, put out a few years ago brilliantly done uh, for, on multiple uh, accounts both because you get to see John Lewis in action uh. who I I'm tearing up here a little bit because he was a contemporary of mine you uh-huh. know it's, it's, it's just a, 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 you know you know being being political in America today without John here is not so easy but it, we can do it anyway it's a matter of um uh, it's getting to see him in action, but it's getting to see Dr. King, getting to see the whole Dr. King in the context of his posse, so he's not up on a pedestal, but he's actually right. seen in the context of his team, who's very much a team player. And then yeah. um, and then seeing his interaction with Lyndon Johnson and how it was possible, because there was a mass movement using nonviolent yes. action, he was possible to, it was possible to push... Johnson, who was, you know, arguably the most powerful single person in the world at that yeah. time, yeah. to push Johnson against his will yes. to uh, drop some other things and put a civil rights law out there. Um, it's, it's, it's really a kind of miracle it happened in 1965 in, in our recent history, and we can learn so much from it. So, And the Selma yes. film is of the many films, there are some wonderful films about uh, the civil rights movement. We're so lucky in America to have this. But especially that one I, I find as a teaching tool and it inspires me every time I watch it. Of course, there's that old story, I don't remember the exact quote, but when uh, uh, A. Uh, Philip Randolph uh, of the Pullman Porters Union, black people entirely, met with Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt said, I'm with you. I, I want to do it. Now you go out there and make me do it. That's right. That's our job. That is our job to create the pressure to switch the public opinion. We need the center. And back in the anti-war movement, uh, there was disagreement about which strategies to use. Do we need to win the center? Or is it time just for, you know, more radical action? You write... The key is unity. 
a challenging concept in a polarized time, especially for those of us who think of ourselves as social change activists. Uh, and, and as you and I both know from our personal history, as you say, change activists generally start out as a minority voice, often a tiny minority. I remember early demonstrations in Boston, 1965. We were a very tiny minority. You, you cite some of the words of Bayard Rustin, the center of gravity. You know, where is that right now? How important is understanding the center of gravity? I mean, so many things. You know, the theater of the news moves the center of gravity, I think. How, how is important is the center of gravity how is it effectively shifted and do you see it happening now in this uh portland uh you know thread of fascism here oh yes i i think it definitely has uh the very fact that when trump said well let's just postpone the election <laughs> yeah. he immediately got pushed back from his own party top leadership of his own party said you got to be crazy. No way are we going to move the election. And uh, and you probably also know about the New York Times uh, op-ed that was immediately published by a co-founder of the conservative group, the Federalist group, uh, oh, yeah. the Federalist gang, um, uh, uh, saying that uh, Trump's very proposal was fascistic. Uh, the, the number of Republicans now from the center of the uh, of that party who are uh, that is to say, leadership people who are coming out now, uh, distinguishing themselves carefully in one way or another, or even less carefully in, in the case of the federal sky, um, basically uh, saying, no, this is going too far. Another place to look for the center, um, as you say, this is unusual for an activist. Like, uh, I've, I've spent most of my life polarizing a you know, good trouble was John Lewis's good trouble let's make good trouble uh Bayard Rustin who you referred yes. to he was a huge mentor for me he was uh, very, anytime he was nearby guy. I was at his feet learning just soaking up the knowledge from African-American guy Quaker uh who was into in, who in high school integrated his local movie theater <laughs> yeah 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 it just is incredible guy and I Learned so much from him. He he said, "There's nothing like having some angelic troublemakers around." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So I've been a troublemaker all my life, and uh, and and that's really really good for getting changes. But there are times when it's not so much change we need as we do need defense of something that already exists. Uh -huh. So in the, this case with Trump that you're you're wanting us to talk about today um, is much more a situation of we want something to exist, that is to say, orderly transfers of power. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> Dictator for life is a change, and we don't <laughs> want that change, so we're not pro-change in this case. We are for the status quo. Um, so let's have the status quo and let's have a change of president. Um, so that, uh, yeah, so I, as I say, I, I just admit, as a, as a longtime activist, that's kind of unusual for me to come out strongly <laughs> for the status quo, but I want to come out for the status quo. And though, then what that means is it's changed in my head. That's why I wrote the article I'm right, working on, my next one on this subject. Um, the change in my head needs to be, oh, well, if instead of, the usual polarizing that we do as activists in order to down the road get our objective, whether that's 
votes for women or whatever our objective is. Um, I'm going to actually try to defend defend the situation here, and so we want the center on our side uh, immediately, uh, you know, as as soon as possible. In other words, we want to play to the center. In in the in change strategies, we want the center, but we we don't expect to get the center for a while. So we just build more and more pressure on the left of the center, more and more and more, and finally the center comes over thinking, oh, well, you know, it looks like that's the right thing to do or whatever. Now it's practical and long last or whatever they say. Um, but in this case, um, there's way less time. I've been researching coup, coup attempts in various places, and uh, very often a coup a coup is decided one way or another within weeks. Mm-hmm. Which is one reason why you know our Republican majority leader in the Senate immediately jumped on Trump. <laughs> let's move the elect. Let's delay the election. So. Because they know that stuff, too. They know that coups are very often resolved in a matter of weeks. So that means we can't wait, uh, do our usual game plan three years to win a campaign or two years to ah. five years. We've got to jump on it, and therefore we play to the center. Yes. And that that makes a difference. And that's sort of outside of, uh, you know, oftentimes the left's behavior playing to the center. It's sort of like, what? No, we're trying to pull it to the left. But now I think this is a unique, I'm getting the sense that this is a unique opportunity right now to appeal to average, not really political people that, all right, what is going to affect, and, and, and what, what's an invasion? You know, what, what, what's going to adversely affect how things have been peaceful, you know, working reasonably well, a good economy, etc., etc. Federal police, Without markings coming into cities and towns, um, I don't know if that worked exactly as Trump intended because they're seen by a lot of people as an invading force. They, I think, I think are scary. And it, perhaps it actually unifies people, people of all different social strata and income and racial identity. Tell us, please, about the lesson that uh, Portland's Joe Ann Hardesty learned about what brings people together. Yeah, she's an amazing African American uh, community leader uh, who, you know, uh, she's an older woman now uh, who is uh, on city council, uh, but spent a lot of her time, uh, a lot of her life, you know, doing community organizing, around, you know, very basic neighborhood level and then a couple of neighborhoods, that uh-huh. kind of thing, and moving things forward. And developing so you know more and more credibility, <laughs> especially in the back black community. Although the black community in Portland is small, and then more and more in the white community, as people realized, oh my gosh, she is just really so wise. And um, so what she did when the feds came in was held a. a, a hosted a rally. She organized a rally as a city council member, and the town people came or something, and she said. Uh, uh, okay, so we Portlanders are famous for fighting with each other. <laughs> I, I wasn't in that crowd, but I can imagine some yeah. people looking at each other you know, and smiled like, oh, well, it's true, it's true, pretty contentious uh, city, politically contentious. Uh, she said, we're famous for that, left versus right, and so on and so on. And guess what? This is a different moment. This is a moment when we get to unite. 
and we get to unite because we're being invaded by an outside force. Uh-huh. So we need to go ahead and get rid of this outside force, and we can only do that with unity. And then afterward, we can go back with fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about uh, what we can do now. Uh, uh, George Lakey's written an article. He's got bunch of interesting books, Viking Economics and How We Win, Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning, new article, Understanding Trump's Plan in Portland Could Be Key to Preventing a Coup. Now, the center, the power of the center, people who are in power, elected leaders, what role does their perceived center play in their sense of leadership, their sense of uh, their own strength? And that's something I think people need to understand. Yeah, it's it's a it's extremely important. Um, in a in a family, we really expect the mom and dad to hold the family together. If it's a single parent family, we expect that person to hold the family together, not say big sister, you know, or big brother. We really look to that leader to hold it together. Coherence is part of the job of. A leader. It's true in an organization. We look for the manager. We look for the director. If there's a director, coordinator, whatever, we look for the leader to to um, to be able to speak for the organization. If the organization split, to say, well, there's my organization is split. It's got two sides, and so on. And the reason why they handle it that way is because they want to hold things together. Holding things together goes with the property of leadership, and um, and that's what we need. And 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 leaders understand that. So even leaders who are fighting each other, one one minute like Republicans and Democrats in Congress, <laughs> the next minute when they realize, oh, but wait a minute, this whole show is at stake. Uh-huh. Then suddenly discover, you know. So we have huge budget differences. On the other hand, if Trump does. X, let's say, uh, then, then, then unity starts showing up across the board. So that pressure, I'm not saying it is, I mean, we can always think of examples of the country, but in general, that is a tremendous pressure felt by the center. And one example of that is the military, because it, the very, very often military leadership of professional armies, I'm talking about the National mm-hmm. Armies by the United States right now, uh, they have for a very long time understood their job to be re- loyalty to the, the whole, loyalty to the integrity of the country. That's their job. So if somebody threatens the integrity of our country through 9-11 or whatever, it's the military's yes. job to respond, right? It's not the military's job to say, well, hmm, you know, considering the oppression for centuries mm-hmm. by Christian countries against Muslim countries, uh, you know, that's not what we expect from the military. We expect instant response on behalf of the whole. And so um, their behavior uh, when Trump decided for partisan reasons right. to, uh, you know, to do his, his, uh, his little op-ed... Uh-huh. The Bible. Uh, uh-huh. And therefore, to have the military clear the streets of demonstrators so he could do his little op-ed. Uh, when, when that happened, uh, the leadership of the military was outraged, yes. because that is violating the integrity of the whole. Uh-huh. And they know their responsibility is to the integrity of the whole. And therefore, they came out against it, and they basically said, forget it. 
And actually, I'm so glad that Trump thought of doing that, or whoever <laughs> the Trump team thought of doing that, because it was such a clear signal to him, uh, to the Trump team. Uh oh, if we do, uh, you know, if if we do want to stay in power, even though Biden is elected, we're not going to be able to count on the military yes. to back us up. That's so important. That is so important. And the military, I mean, that whole thing with uh, the Navy's Captain Crozier, who uh, tried to protect his, uh, the, the people on his ship, the uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt, from uh, coronavirus. He's a hero. Trump was not seen as a hero. But, uh, but having the military is, uh, obviously, throughout history, very important to legitimacy. And, and as you say, uh, I think this is, this is what we're, we're talking about here. Here's the challenge to us. Strategizing for defense is different from strategizing for change. It's about defense. And I think the more people, you know, non-political type people, the center sees it's about defense, uh, you know, th- I think they're starting to see Trumpism as a threat. Um, and you, you write that if in contemporary America you have no fear, you simply don't understand what's up. I think it's vital, that we, personally, that we do not let fear overcome us. We may, we may have fear, but we cannot let fear have us. Easier said than done. Have there been previous times in history from which there are lessons to be learned regarding threats and attacks and sort of overcoming fear and somehow making use of it and not letting it dictate to us? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Fear, I think 9-11 is an example of ah. that. Uh, yeah, when, when the World Trade Center was attacked, the response was overwhelmingly fear, great fear, and great solidarity. Extraordinary yep. amount of solidarity. Not inaccurate to paint what's going on now as is, is a threat to us, to our way of life. And, right. you know, it's happening so much with the, the threat from coronavirus, the threat from tremendous unemployment and really hard times for a lot of people who've never felt, they've never reached for government help before. And they're pushed by into poverty, this increasing desperation. You know, this is, this is not normal. The center dare I say, is up for grabs, I think. And I think that perhaps, you know, the center is afraid, as you say, and we have real reason to be afraid that this is not normal stuff. You offer somewhat of a simple formula, two questions that we should ask ourselves in the article. Please, please tell us what those two questions we should ask ourselves are. Very short questions. Ask, what do they want me to do? Then don't do it. Ask what they don't want me to do. Then consider it. It's a fun little tactical game I like to play uh, when I'm, you know, worrying I'm running out of ideas or something. (laughs) (laughs) Because the thing about when I know they want me to do it and I can say no, uh, that that is the spirit of non-cooperation that is so powerful when it's done on a mass basis. There there are a number of coups. My head is partly this winning in, in still the research on that I'm doing on coups and how people have successfully uh, stopped them. The plotters are depending on the cooperation of, say, government bureaucrats right, to do their thing under new command, a new top, but they want everybody else to be doing what they were doing. And, uh, and when people don't, when people don't even go to work, 
<laughs> it's dramatic. Uh, t- take um, when uh, a guy named, there was a civilian named Wolfgang Kopp, a uh, right-winger in Germany, who in 1920 was able to get a bunch of uh, military, but not most of the military, but a bunch of the military to back him up. And he said this, uh, you know, the current government was a social democratic government. He said, it was, it's rotten. They're pulling us to the left. We don't want to go to the left. We want to go to the right. So I want you to back me up so I can replace him as, and, and run the country right. And they said, okay, okay, let's do that. He's able to go to work the next day and expecting now I'm, now I'm running things. And there's nobody there. There's nobody there. I am now running Germany. <laughs> this is major industrial power. <laughs> I am now running Germany, right? But there's nobody there. Uh, there's nobody there to do it. And he doesn't know how to type. He's traditional male and hasn't learned how to type. Yeah. So the next day, he brings his daughter to the capital with him to type out the manifesto that says he's running the country. He's obviously not running the country because the civil service decided on the promptings of the trade union movement, which is also not going to work, and with many, many people joining in not going to work, basically they're saying no to cop. And in a week, he's done. He's done. So don't do what they expect. He thought he was running the country, and it turned out to run the country, you need the cooperation of the same people that you don't ordinarily even pay attention to <laughs> and there they are all turning the wheels making things work and non-cooperation because it's not we had a recent example in our own country general motors this incredibly powerful corporation exploiting to workers and the union said it's we're stopping we're going yes, on strike indeed. you're not agreeing to it you know and they did they were on strike and they stopped general motors from making cars and General Motors finally caved because the managers aren't going to make the cars. <laughs> so it's just noticing what your power is in the situation. You can't have uh, school if the teachers won't teach. The teachers can't teach if the students won't go to school, and so on and so on. Each of us is in a system in which cooperation is required in order for the people to talk to get done what they want to get done. And our ability to non-cooperate is, as far as I've studied, and I'm 82 now, I've been studying this all my life, the most powerful single coercive force in the world is the power to non-cooperate. Ah, well, that's a lesson we can learn, and it works. Non-cooperation. Fabulous stuff. If people want to hear more of your stuff, and we could go on for a long time, there must be some website to which you can point them, or... So I write most often to uh, for a website called wagingnonviolence.org. Ah, yes. Yes. WagingNonViolence.org, well over 100 articles of mine are mm. archived on their climate and so on. So a lot of specific strategic suggestions, but they're, because I'm a sociologist and I love uh, research, mm-hmm. I uh, draw very strongly on the positive lessons from other movements, you know, so that, and not even other countries, so that we can benefit from best practices wherever they are. Benefit from best practices. What a concept. Thank you so much for being with us. Very educational, and I I have not a small degree of hope that uh, the center is coming together. Thank you so much, George Lakey, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, and it's quite a goal, Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. It's tremendous for talking with you, Bert. You're a wonderful, wonderful conversationalist. Yeah, thank you. Lost track of how I've gone I've gone how high i a 60 pound stone on the shoulder half my 